With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the COVID Ethics Series podcast, a conversation with leading experts about bioethical issues that have been exacerbated due to the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Brian Pilkington, and I teach bioethics at Seton Hall University and at the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. I moderate the COVID Ethics Series in cooperation with the IHS Library and IHS Student Life. This podcast is a spinoff collaboration with the IHS Library, where we'll have the opportunity to go deeper with the experts from our series. Thanks for joining our conversation. Welcome, everyone, to the COVID Ethics Series podcast. Uh, My name is Brian Pilkington, and I teach ethics as our usual listeners know, at Seton Hall University and in the Hackensack Meridian School of Medicine. I'm delighted today to have Denise Ochola with me. Denise Ochola is a contact tracer. Um, And Denise, you are doing contact tracing, but you have a more official title. You're an investigator of some sort. Tell our folks who you are and what you're doing. Sure. Um, So hi, Brian. I'm so happy to be here. Um, I am a case investigator with the New York City Test and Trace Corps. Um, The the Test and Trace Corps is divided into a few roles, but in terms of the people who place the phone calls to do the contact tracing, there are case investigators who kind of dig into what people have been up to to get a sense of what contacts need to be traced. Um, And then there are people who follow up and do daily monitoring, and they're called contact monitors, and they reach out to contacts and then also check in with both people who tested positive and people who are contacts of the folks who tested positive to just check on symptoms and make sure they don't need anything. Excellent. Um, A helpful background because we've all heard contact tracing a lot, but I think at least for me, I didn't know exactly what it entailed. So before I pick your brain about some of those details, how did you get into contact tracing? I know you have a background in public health. Um, You've been in the healthcare and some other spaces in different kinds of ways. Why contact tracing? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so one, just uh, on contact tracing, like it's a it's a public health practice that's been around for a while, right? And New York City um, has been doing it. They have an active contact tracing for tuberculosis and maybe for other diseases, but I know for t- tuberculosis. Um, and essentially contact tracing is getting a sense for really highly contagious viruses Uh, where people may have been exposed to it and making sure that people who are diagnosed with that virus, we understand who else may get that virus so we can contain it as as much as possible. Um, I became a contact tracer. Uh, Some of it was luck, some of it is training. And, um, you know, some of it was just the city needed a lot of people. So um, back in, I'd say February, when I really became aware that this, the pandemic that had been affecting China was making its way to the United States. Um, I was I was obsessed, <laughs> and I listened to the Brian Lehrer show on WNYC religiously, um, and uh, he was doing a lot of coverage on this at least once or twice a week. Um, and I was at a point where I was 
starting to create my own public health program focused on making uh, healthcare more accessible and acceptable for black men, um, but needed to not be doing a full-time job um, that required all of my attention. So I could create the thing that I really wanted to do. So I was doing some temp work um, and had the time to listen to all of these stories about um, different ways that the coronavirus was affecting China and the likelihood that it was coming to the United States. Um, had to stop doing the temp work in March when the whole city shut down and was just really wanting to be a part of the effort to control the spread of the virus. Um, city of New York had a hiring event and uh, hired, I think about a hundred people all at once in March. Um, didn't get in that pool of people because at the time I didn't have experience with surveillance. Um, I'm, I've done HIV research. I've done some public health consulting. Uh, I did some outreach with an insurance company um, for enrolling people in, during uh, insurance open enrollment, but hadn't done surveillance work. A month or so later in April, the city was hiring, city of New York was hiring a, a thousand people to do contact tracing because it was clear that the pandemic was getting to a point where it was feasible to reach out to the people who had tested positive for the virus. Um, you know, right at the height of things when it seemed like the, the numbers were just at a level that felt uncontrollable, it wasn't practical to reach out to every person who had the virus because there just wasn't, there weren't the resources to do it. We didn't have the human resources, the training hadn't happened yet. Um, but by April, they had started hiring. By May, you know, the first class of people were training. And then in June, the program launched. Um, so because I have a background in qualitative research, because I have a master's degree from Johns Hopkins, which has, you know, become one of the leading authorities in, um, in, COVID-19 uh, for the world, not just the country, um, you know, it was, I think, and I applied very early. Um, I think it was kind of easy for me to get into that first class, but, you know, it was a whole combination of things. Um, but being a huge public health nerd, I think really <laughs> gave me an edge there too. That's, um, that's really helpful. And uh, if we have some time later, I'd like to return to your work in access for healthcare for Black mm -hmm. men. Uh, yeah. And for the listeners to the podcast, you'll remember that um, our last episode featured Dr. Tade Ayeni, um, who was talking about the his work on um, his study, his phenomenological study on Black experiences in medical school and structural racism. Um, so I think it'll be sort of tie in nicely. But before we pivot there, um, I'm curious, as a contact tracer, you're an investigator, right? Mm -hmm. So, and this, this is a little bit of an airy question, um, but how do you think about conceptions of truth? How do you think about facts? I mean, we've had the, some different and I think problematic conversations, some challenges to different sorts of expertise and authority, um, but you're not engaged in political rhetoric, right? I mean, you're, you're right. on the ground finding this stuff out. So yeah, uh, can you help us think through maybe some of the ethics of, I mean, there's a big, yeah. So yeah, help. no, like, I love the question. <laughs> I love the question. I love the airiness. Um, and it, it brought me back to grad school when I was thinking about this question. Um, and when I think about truth and facts um, in relationship to my work and just in relationship, you know, I, I consider myself a scientist um, and I'm a social scientist, but also despite the fact that I, I'm not a very good epidemiologist, like I, I do believe in epidemiology, right? Um, and as a scientist, you know, we, we come up against the fact that we don't, we can't say anything with 100% certainty. It's just being, the nature of being a scientist means that, you know, especially with medical research, um, you're, you're researching a sample of the population. So no matter how good your study is, no matter how broad your population is, 
um, you, you're, it's still just a sample. So you can say, you know, there's 98% certainty that uh, X is not a causal factor of Y. Um, and we get into this, this is why I thought about grad school because of a lecture around um, anti-vaccination campaign and uh, the way that that gets some legs because scientists can't say, you know, we know with 100% certainty that the MMMR vaccine does not cause um, uh, autism, right? But we can say like, we are really, 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 really certain but anti-vaxxers will take that, you know, 2% uncertainty or that 0.05 uncertainty and run with it. Um, and so in that way, you know, I, as a scientist and as a social scientist more so, I think about truth and facts more in the context of people's experiences um, and how people, um, so how people experience what happens to them. Um, and, you know, we ask about symptoms. We ask about symptoms, not just to get a sense of um, the prevalence of certain symptoms um, within the, the total population who get the virus, who were able to contact trace, um, but also to establish when we think the infectious period started. So the, the point at which we think we can estimate that someone started to be contagious, and then also the length of time that someone needs to be in, um, in isolation. So for someone who has symptoms, um, you know, we go two days before those symptoms started to begin the contact tracing process. And then 10 days from those symptoms started is the length of the isolation date. The thing with symptoms is like, the, it's, not, it's not factual, right? It's, it's experiential. One of the symptoms is headaches um, or sinus congestion is another symptom. And those are both things that happen to people pretty regularly. And so I've talked to lots of people who can't say for certain, you know, whether the sinus congestion they felt last week was seasonal or whether it was because of their COVID infection. And so we kind of do our best to, okay, well, you had that sinus infection um, or you had those sinus issues. Did it feel like your normal sinus issues or did it feel different? Did that headache feel like a headache you usually get or did it feel different? And then try to get as much information about any other symptoms if there are other symptoms to inform both when we need to you know, trace back to the, the contacts they may have had and the length of time for um, their isolation date. So that, um, that raises a, a, another sort of big ethics question, which is, so you're asking about symptoms um, and I'll, I'll move us a little bit away from the fact point. I mean, that was really helpful about thinking about um, and rooting a lot of this work in experiences. Mm -hmm. So you're asking about personal experiences, you're asking mm -hmm. about lots of information. Um, how do you as an investigator of this sort, think about the privacy of health information. Mm -hmm. So we've had um, both at Hopkins, which you reference, and lots of other places. Of course, the best place to do bioethics is the Hackensack Meridian Schools of Medicine and Stanford <laughs> University. Of course. <laughs> but um, but no, but uh, seriously, so there've been lots of folks doing work in this area. There are apps. There are all sorts of things. How does privacy come into play as you think through these things? So I do when I so I do think about privacy because I I do want people to feel comfortable sharing information. Um, I it, privacy is not something that I, I have a, a lot of you know experience in or think a lot about. But within the context as of you know the work I do, um, one I I know that we have a responsibility as public health professionals to protect private health information. But we also need to um, get as much of that information, like, you know, the, the degree to which one's private life remains private in the context of a global health emergency, you know, gets reduced. So um, 
it's important for me to, <laughs> I haven't had this come up, but one of the questions that we ask is, it, do you have a romantic partner who is not a member of your household who you've had contact with you know, in the period of time we're asking um, where we think you may have been contagious? And um, when I'm talking to people who I know are married, <laughs> whose spouse is in the background, sometimes if the spouse is in the background, I just skip the question because I don't know if um, I'm on speakerphone or not. Uh, if I'm talking to someone who, you know, I know to be partnered and to stay with their partner. And I do ask the question, it, it's always a little cringy because it feels very invasive, but it's also a relevant question to ask. And I know that my colleagues have spoken to people who say yes, um, and that they do have romantic partners. They have extramarital partners who then need to be traced. Uh, so that I think is a really good example of like, the private needing to become somewhat public. And of course the information we collect is kept confidential. So we're not out there telling people's business and you know, outside of a household, we're pretty much, you know, it's very common for a household uh, to have multiple people within the household who have the virus. And it's not really a secret among family members, but outside of a household where I know other people know they're infected, I'm not sharing and I'm not allowed to share the information of like, oh, so-and-so said that you are a contact of theirs. You know, um, that's just not something we share. It's something that do pe people do ask about and they are reluctant to share information because they think that we might disclose, um, but we don't and we can't. Um, our calls are recorded and I can assure you someone will come, you know, uh, knocking on my virtual door and saying, excuse me, ma'am. <laughs> that's not what you were supposed to do. Um, if, you know, I do step over that line of privacy and confidentiality, um, yeah. That's, yeah, that that's helpful. And then, um, I mean, and just thinking about the practice and so the student, the bioethics students who I'm sure are listening to this, thinking about the practical reasoning of an investigator of your sort, right, to make those um, in the moment decisions, right? Of course, you, it's confidential, you're not going to share it. But the extramarital case is, is a really interesting case. And I'm trying to think of what to compare compare it to for broad bioethics guidelines. And telehealth comes to mind, mm -hmm. but it seems like maybe one of the differences here, and you highlighted this really well, and it's sort of the classic question when you move from big public health ethics questions to sort of interpersonal health care practitioner patient dynamics is in a health, in a telehealth interaction, when I call it my doc, right, it's it, her object is my health, whereas mm -hmm. you have, I think, a, a greater challenge because it's, um, it's both the health of the individual person, but really it's the public health, mm -hmm. right? So that's, yeah. yeah. Well, and I see my job as being really uh, multifaceted in that I, I, I'm there to, for the period that we are together, I'm there to take care of the person I'm on the phone with to some extent, you know, COVID is scary, <laughs> like it's really scary. And some people kind of take it in stride and some people are, you know, understandably concerned. Um, and so while I'm on the phone with that person, like, yes, there's information I need to get from you, but I also wanna make sure that you feel taken care of. And if there are any questions you have or any needs you have that I address them to the best of, of my abilities, um, given the things I have access to, given the knowledge I have. Um, so I'm there to take care of the person I'm on the phone with. I'm also there as a public health professional to gather as much information I can for the good of the public. Um, and then also as a representative of the city of New York, of our health system, I'm there to help um, 
imbue trust in our system, in our systems, in the medical systems. And as a black woman, as a woman of color, like that is, um, you know, that's even more important because there are such, uh, there are so many concerns by communities of color. And I know this is something that you'd wanted to touch on. Um, you know, a lot of communities of color have very warranted suspicions of uh, medical institutions, of government institutions. And so, you know, I am trying to imbue some sense of trust in whoever I talk to, whether um, it's a person who identifies as a person of color or, a, you know, a non-person of color because I'm trying to take care of you and I'm trying to take care of the public, I want you to know that this is what the institution is attempting to do. It's a greater or lesser success, um, <laughs> depending on the day, right? And the institution. Um, but that's that's the intention. That's, yeah, no, and uh, thanks for pivoting us there. Because um, we we know, and again, our, our listeners are aware, because um, we've discussed this topic both on the, um, the COVID ethics series and it's come up on the podcast, that folks of color have been disproportionately impacted by COVID. And for people, sorry, Denise, to keep pulling listeners back to previous episodes. But um, for those of you who are following along with this conversation, you'll recall that we talked about structural racism and that, um, to borrow from Dr. Ayeni, COVID is not racist. It's actually the structures, you'll recall from last time, um, and that there's sort of a broad call for folks to engage those structures um, and not step away. So as someone who's investigating as a woman of color, is there anything that you would share with our audience in terms of like, as a contractor, have you have issues of structural racism been forefront on your mind? I mean, you already mentioned the point about trust, but in a sort of daily practice way, how does this, how does this come up? So I really, um, it's, it's a little complicated and, the example that came to mind when I was thinking about this, and it's something I've discussed with uh, a friend of mine who also works in healthcare, um, it's kind of roundabout, but I've had two different days where within the same day, I've talked to um, two young people. So I, when I say young people, they have to be over the age of 18, but in their early 20s. So in the same day, I've talked to two people in their early 20s, um, one of whom was white identified, one of whom was either black or Latino, um, or Black or Latinx, uh, and I was really struck by the juxtaposition of the calls because um, often when I talk to, especially young white New Yorkers, there's this sense that they are really happy, willing, and excited to comply. And um, they answer all of my questions and they're just like gung-ho. And it's just a much more mixed bag with young people um, who are uh, specifically of Latinx, Latinx um, background. I talked to, you know, New Yorkers of all, <laughs> all nationalities, really. I've talked to so many different kinds of New Yorkers, which has been a true gift. But, um, you know, with like, with young people who I can kind of tell by the conversation are native New Yorkers um, who are black or Puerto Rican or Dominican or a mix of any of those things. There's a little, and this is not across the board, but there's a higher likelihood of some suspicion and some interaction with me as an authority figure and some resentment of my role as authority figure of trying to get information from them, of just calling them and harassing them. You know, there's a sense that I am harassing them. And I attribute that to the difference in those interactions to, you know, young white people feeling like these systems are designed to take care of them and designed for them to facilitate them having an easy life. 
versus young people of color feeling like these systems are often in opposition to them having a happy, fulfilled, peaceful life. And again, on the days where I've had those two, like the calls, not back to back, but within a couple hours of each other and just notice the difference in how I was received, um, it's just been so stark. And again, it's not, it's a, a real big generalization. And I don't mean to suggest that, you know, young people of color or people of color in general aren't willing to give information and aren't helpful. But in instances where there is a bit more resistance, it really does remind me of when I used to work with kids on the Lower East Side who felt like their teachers were more oppressive than, you know, their, their teachers and their school administrators were like their oppressors and they didn't understand them and they didn't take the, the time to understand them. And it made those kids just generally suspicious of any authority figure. Um, you know, just feeling like the systems you have to operate within were not designed for you and are more likely to do you harm than to do you good. Thank you. That's that's really helpful. And um, so Denise, thank you. That's that's really helpful. I want to shift as we sort of um, come toward the end of our time to um, what's really next for you. Um, what are you doing, sort of, what in in the long term post contact tracing? Do you think you're going to continue to do this? You had mentioned work um, in healthcare access for Black men. So mm -hmm. what's what's sort of next? Oh gosh, I wish I knew. <laughs> so I will say generally. Um, and, you know, because we have a personal connection, um, you know, this, this issue of like healthcare and black men and the way that men in general, whether of any color in America and worldwide, really, um, the way that men interact and engage with healthcare is so much informed by, um, by gender dynamics and by, by gender roles and, and the way that gender is conceived. And I find that fascinating. Um, I'm, in general, I'm very interested in any time uh, societal structures influence healthcare seeking and healthcare outcomes. And so um, with Black men, there's this combination of being male, being man, having a male identity, and the ways in which that, um, the ways in which that uh, kind of inhibits <laughs> healthcare interaction, and then being Black and having one suspicions of healthcare uh, systems, um, having less access to healthcare systems, um, and then experiencing uh, racism and prejudice within a healthcare system. So there are all these barriers for Black men, and they have some of the worst health statistics in the United States. And there's not much being done to target Black men specifically. And so I would like to, you know, I don't know if it will still be the community health program that um, the pop-up clinics, I was going to do pop-up clinics uh, in Brooklyn and was super excited to have these in-person clinics that goodness knows when they can happen um, now, right? So that was, that was the thing I wanted to do. Um, what I do next, I think will still be somewhere around health access and acceptability of seeking healthcare for Black men. But my experience as a contact tracer has generally left me dissatisfied with how healthcare and public health is delivered to a big, massive, diverse population. Um, and so I don't know where that's going to take me, but I know I want to continue to nerd out around this and will likely be uh, pursuing a doctor, doctorate of public health, um, so DRPH, within the next year or two. Excellent. Excellent. Thank you. Um, and thanks so much for taking the time. We're going to close out. So for everyone, I've been speaking with Denise Ochola, who's doing contact tracing now. Um, and we'll be off to a doctoral program uh, within a year, which is excellent. Uh, so thanks so much, Denise, for taking the time. Uh, it was great to have you on. Great to see you again. And um, yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Brian.
Thank you for listening to this episode of the COVID Ethics Series podcast. Be sure to check out video versions of our episodes online at library.shu.edu slash COVID Ethics. Follow the show on Twitter at Shu Bioethics and our moderator, me, at BCP Ethics. And if you're listening to this show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, please subscribe and leave a review. If there's a topic you'd like to see discussed in the future, let us know. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.